Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Some of the videos just get you right here. Uh, That's one of them. Hey, I got a little confession to make. We're in our series of Wisecracks, and I want to greet all of you online. Forgive my manners. I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here. We're doing a series on Proverbs, which I never thought I'd do. In fact, I tried to talk myself out of it, and our online pastor, Kurt Bissell, told me I was an idiot. Uh, The staff does that a lot with me. I've learned in this church, you, you can say just about anything about me, but if I take a shot at my wife, I get scolded by all of you. I am married to St. Teresa. Um, but Kurt shared with me, Chip, you've got to dig into this. There's so much error. And he's so right. I'm so glad I did it, or we did it. We're doing it collectively through the summer. But I will tell you, after about 12 sermons on Proverbs, you all should get that one. Okay, we're going to put that to rest. Um, but it's part of wisdom literature. Um, in the Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, and some people add the Psalms. Now, the Psalms were really more of a songbook for early Israel, but read as narrative, they do fall into kind of wisdom literature, and it's, it's teaching all about um, wisdom, and so we've titled this, this series Wisecracks. Now, I'm moving into something today uh, dealing with so much of Proverbs. I didn't really realize this because I hadn't dug in. Uh, Kurt, give me an amen up there. I'm, I'm working at it. Um, so much is about relationships. And I got to thinking, you know, wisdom is not morality. Wisdom is not um, religion. Wisdom, wisdom is, is making choices, right? And sometimes both choices are right. It's not like one's right and one's wrong. How many of you have gone through that in life? You've had two choices and they both were, you know, both were good. But you needed wisdom to discern what choice to make at that moment. Now think about that in relationships. If we don't do that well, relationships fall apart. Amen? Churches fall apart. Marriages fall apart. Children fall apart. Um, Friendships fall apart because we don't have that discerning wisdom. And so I want to deal with that. So here's my confession. Today I was going to try to do this. I want to talk about wisdom for families. So there's a lot in here uh, about spouses, marriages, parents and children, children and parents. And I rehearsed this message again this morning, and I realized I had talked for like 55 minutes. So I don't want to torture you through that, right? I preach about, on average, about 30 minutes. That's what they tend to throw up there on my countdown clock. Um, And somebody said to me, why do you preach 30 minutes? When I first got to Garfield 18 years ago, at our very first service, there was a brother who sat in the back, and um, we, we actually became very good friends. But I didn't know this. He had a habit that whenever the preacher got to 15 minutes, he would literally take his watch off and he'd hold it in the air. Seriously. I, I was like, why is this man holding his watch in the air? And then I thought, being a good Christian, I would just preach another 15 minutes so he'd have to have his hand in the air for 15 minutes. That, that, that just, that's me. You guys know I have the spiritual gift of irritation. Um, 
The true story is I studied under Dr. Gardner C. Taylor. Uh, he was one of the pillars of the civil rights movement, a close personal friend of Dr. King. And Dr. Taylor would preach for 45 to 60 minutes. That was his thing. And you know what? Every time he was done preaching, I still wanted more. And so I kind of landed in this zone, and I, talk, I asked Dr. Taylor one time, I said, when is a sermon too long? He said, a sermon's too long when it seems long. He said, I've heard 10-minute sermons that were way too long. And I've heard our sermons that had me wanting more. So anytime I've seemed long in the time you've been with me, I apologize. But I didn't really want to seem long today, and I realized I didn't want to hold you for an hour. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about the marriage aspect this week, and then I'm going to talk about parents and kids next week. Okay, so we'll have the same scripture next week. So as I'm talking about this, I want to say to you, I say, well, look, I'm not married. I'm not interested in getting married. I don't have kids. How's this apply to me? Would you please listen in? Because there's so much of the imagery that God uses for us, uh, metaphors. He talks about Jesus' relationship with us. It's like a marriage. He says, I'm the bridegroom, you're the bride. Men, if you don't like being called a bride, get over it. Because Jesus said, you are one. Okay? Bridegroom, bride. Um, Parenting, father, son, you know, parent, child. We know God is way more than that. But God uses that to speak to us in our salvation. So these images, I hope, just glean truth from it because I'll be honest with you, all of this stuff applies to all of us all of the time, okay? So I'm going to talk about marriage. Terry and I have been married 32 years. Uh, We've been together 35. Um, And so not that I'm some marriage expert, but just kind of sharing what we've learned along the journey. And listen, if anybody can stay with me 35 years, like... Like, there's some good stuff in here, man. I'm telling you. That's the only thing that's worked. Um, and so I want to talk about some of the basic relationships. I think we have a problem in contemporary society. We don't even understand marriage. Do you know, and you can type in online or some of you shout out, if you think of famous people, who do you think in the world has been married the most times? Elizabeth Taylor, somebody said, yeah, she's been married uh, eight times. Halle Berry. Poor Halle Berry, man. Why you got to pick on Halle Berry? I, I, I only know of two. Does she have three? I don't know. Uh, huh? Mickey Rooney. Gosh, you guys are giving me, I don't, I don't know. Um, King Henry VIII. Remember him when he got tired of his spouse? What did he do? <laughs> he was married six times. Uh, I thought Liz Taylor at eight times was the most, you know, the celebrity married the most. Actually, it was Zsa Zsa Gabor. She was married nine times. Some millennials are like, who is that? Uh, Google Green Acres, it was a fun show. Um, actually, but none of them come close to the person who I think, it, it was on the internet, so it has to be true, um, was married the, the most. There was a brother, uh, this came out of a local newspaper, not here, but in, kind of in their community, local news. Um, they discovered a guy, and what happened was they had to research his life because he passed away, he had nothing to his name, and he was left in the morgue, and nobody came and claimed the body. For months, nobody would come and claim the body. And so when they dug into his life, they found out he was married 29 times. 29 times. He had 40 children. And nobody came to claim the body. Isn't that interesting? His name was uh, Glenn Scotty Wolf. And psychologists were saying, what makes somebody get married 29 times? And they kind of, as they interviewed some of the ex-spouses and that, and they, they basically all said the same thing. Whenever the bumps hit the road, whenever it got a little conflicted, he started looking for other things. See, 
in the Bible, it talks a lot when we stray from God. I love what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah said, um, tell me what you found wrong with me, that you began to chase after worthless things and became yourself worthless. Uh, like, like wanting living water, but you dig down in broken cisterns that can carry no water. And every time God said we did that, every time, read the Old Testament, every time we wandered from God, he called it adultery. You're marrying other things when you should only be married to me. And so uh, I, I realized too, they did a survey, U.S. Census Bureau in 2018 did a survey of young adults, like a thousand or something, a test group, and they were 18 to 34, and they asked them about life transitions. What are life transitions for you that you've gone through or you're thinking about in the future that are of greatest importance to you? Life transitions. 62% of them said completing formal schooling. Now, I'm a big education guy. So that that kind of was interesting to me that 62% said that. That was the number one. Uh, number two was being employed full-time, 52%. Capable of supporting a family financially, 50%. Becoming financially independent from their parents. Kids, are you watching? No, I'm kidding. It was a joke. Um, uh, 43%. My kids are all, they don't depend on me for that. Uh, Moving out of the parents' home only got 26%. I love that because I am an empty nester and I don't do it well. <laughs> Hi, I'm Chip, and I'm a terrible empty nester. I make stuff up that my kids will come over to the house. It's a true story. I have called Tiana, my oldest daughter, sometimes and said, I think I'm having chest pains. Can you come over? Lying. Lying. So I'm um, really glad that only 26% said moving out of their parents' home. Do you know what was last on the list? Getting married. Only 12% of those surveyed said that getting married was a big deal. I think we got a problem with understanding marriage. And so here's what I've learned, okay, is I talk about relationship between spouses, okay? First off, we have to understand that marriage is a covenant. It's covenantal. Whenever I do premarital counseling, I always talk to couples and I said, look, there's two aspects of marriage. There's an earthly aspect and there's a spiritual component. The earthly aspect is a contract. You have a contract of marriage, and I'm glad there is a contract for marriage. Um, and, and, and that, you know, that there's rights that are, are held by all. But I said, a contract, you don't have to come to a pastor for that. Like, you can go to the mayor's office, you can go to the captain of the good times, too, downtown. They can do the contract. But the only role I have in here is to honor the covenant. The covenant of marriage. The commitment of marriage that we're making to one another, sealing in a covenant. And, you know, I'm going to say something controversial to you. I have said to spouses, you may have done that already. See, Terry and I made the covenant of marriage long before our wedding day. We made that commitment. But I said the wedding then day becomes a celebration of that covenant you've made. And you can't do it only with two people. You have to do it with three. I love when Jesus said we're two or more. <laughs> two, like friendships, marriage, parent and child. Where two are gathered in my name. I will turn your duet into a trio. And that's what we do. And it's a covenant. And God makes a covenant with us. Read through the scriptures. God continually makes covenants. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve. He made a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He made, and on behalf of all the people, that makes a covenant at Mount Sinai with Moses and the people. And then when we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, what do we remember? Jesus took the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Of, of the ultimate commitment. And if you read, covenants are always future-oriented. 
They're not about the present. When God makes a covenant with the people, read Exodus 19. He doesn't say, I am your God. He says, I am at, at the burning bush. But when he makes a covenant, what he says is, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's future oriented. And do you notice even when you say vows of marriage, if you've been to a wedding or if you've participated in a wedding, the vows have nothing to do with present love. Nothing. They're future oriented. I'm making vows about things I will do in the future to keep my fidelity to this covenant. And so marriages are covenantal. And we need to think about that. And Jesus brings to us the ultimate covenant and the ultimate commitment. And that's why we model ourselves under that kind of action. Uh, Heather Harveleski, she does a blog, and it's kind of like a Dear Abby. And it's for young adults that write into her. And there was a young adult that wrote in about marriage to her blog. I I read it uh, online. And the question came, is marriage obsolete? Is it obsolete? And here's what the young adult wrote. Is marriage obsolete? She said, isn't it reasonable to question the value of a legal contract written in ink on paper that involves disastrously punitive forms of dissolution? Particularly when it's paired with an enormously expensive ceremony that often includes allusions to obedience and lifelong mutual suffering and death of all things. I'm like, this is depressing. And there are a host of inconveniences to being married along with untold drudgery, monotony, frustration, and regret. Considering all that, what could possibly be the point of this outdated charade? That's a young woman in her 20s. And Heather wrote back and said, so why do I love this torturous state of affairs so much? It is because some of the peak moments of a marriage are when you share your anxieties, your fears, your longing, even your horrors. That's why my favorite vow is in sickness and in death. I believe they're key to the marriage vows because there's nothing more divine than being able to say, today I am really truly at my worst and knowing that my spouse won't run for the hills. My spouse has seen my worst before. We both know that our worst is likely to get worse, but somehow that feels like grace future-oriented, and that's what Jesus Christ had with us. Do you remember on the night before he died, he prayed, Father, for these, but not only for these, but for those who will come to know me because of their testimony. So whenever a preacher says on the last day of Jesus' life, he had you on his mind, read John 17, he did. Future-oriented, that's what a covenant is. I remember there was, from one of my early years at the church, there was an older couple, they'd been married, gosh, I don't know, 70 years or something like that, and they were very frail and they couldn't get out. He was one of the first, his was one of the first funerals I did here at Garfield. And his wife was so devastated at that loss that actually my wife went and spent the weekend with her to help, you know, nurture that. And we would go over to their house and they had a little pillow on their, on their couch, and I just fell in love with it. It was embroidered with a little saying, and I kept telling her how much I loved it. And when she died, and her children, uh, family went to the home uh, to get her belongings, they brought the pillow to us because she had put a safety pin on, and she said, for Chip and Terry. And I still have it today. You know what it says on that pillow? Come grow old with me. The best is yet to come. Future. Covenant. Hang in there with one another friendships, marriages, parenting, we'll talk about, as Jesus Christ hangs in there, literally, for us.
right? So it's, it's, it's a relationship between spouses and covenantal. The second thing, and this is a good part, it's becoming passionate, and this is one word, lover friends. That's what's in Proverbs. There is some really juicy stuff in Proverbs, man. Kurt, you were right. I'm starting to worry about you. No, I'm kidding. There's some really juicy. I mean, you want sex and romance? It's laid out in there. Now, I have to be apologize to all the non-males in the room. As if you remember last week, I talked about most Hebrew scholars believe Proverbs was written, and we know it's a very patriarchal society. Thank God we've grown. Written for a boys' school because only boys could go to school. So there's a lot of references to wife and these things, and it's, it's a little sexist in some ways. But I think if we read it through our eyes, we realize it's speaking to all of us, sons, daughters, all of us, okay? And, but, but I was amazed, like, there's some real, like, romantic, this is like a, Danielle Steele novel or something, man. I've never read that, but her name popped into my head. Don't know why. Um, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Um, but there's a lot of this, and then there's a lot of talk about friendship. In fact, it says one person abandoned the covenant, left what it says there, the partner of their youth. And I went to my Hebrew dictionary, and that term, a partner of my youth, literally means my most intimate and deepest friend. And what is radical about this, okay, what's really, really radical about this, um, it's not that there's all this, that there's this call to be romantic lovers and friends. In that day and age, in biblical times, nobody got married for love. That would not even show up literally for centuries. In fact, you've read this in early European culture. Nobody got married for love. You got married for status. That's why a lot of them were arranged in traditional society. You got married for wealth. You got married to have heirs. And why did you have children back then? Because children were your workforce. You think people are having trouble getting people to work in today's day and age? Back then, you just birthed more kids. That was your workforce, right? As your employees. And, and that's why people got married. In fact, men, and it was always men, would always seek sexual gratification outside of marriage. That was, that's what they did. That was... You know, boys will be boys, right? And when you read the Bible, the Christian community was really the first. Now, Judaism had don't commit adultery and everything, but you saw they still had the boys will be boys because when they caught the woman in adultery and dragged her to Jesus, any, anything wrong with that story? Takes two to tango in the act, but they just gave the brother a high five and dragged her out, right? That, that's, so it was a patriarch. The Christian community was the first that says sex should be in the context of marriage. And that was, to the world, that was like, well, these are weirdos. You know, men did all these crazy things. There's all this stuff in the Bible. I want to tell you that I know you may think this is controversial, but it's true. When the Bible talks about, you know, heterosexual sex and same-sex acts, anytime Paul talks about same-sex acts, he is not speaking to the LGBTQ community as we understand today. They had no concept of that. What he was speaking to was heterosexual men who would go to the gymnasiums in that day and age, they didn't lift weights, they were saunas, and they'd all go in there, you know, like you go into a sauna, and they'd have sex with each other, and they'd have sex with little teenage boys, which was really in vogue in that day and age. There was not one Roman emperor that didn't have a teenage male prostitute, and then they would go home to their spouses and families. And Paul said, that's some sick stuff. How many agree? I do, right? Sex was never within the confines of marriage, because you didn't marry for love. So you sought romance elsewhere. And the book of Proverbs, in that day and age, in that kind of community, said, you marry for love. That's, I mean, that's really startling to me. It was so countercultural. 
Yeah, but it was back then was even saying, no, you marry together, you become passionate lovers and friends in a very traditional time. And even psychologists have looked at Proverbs. I read one who was a Christian psychologist. And he says, very interesting that the Bible says that in marriage, it's spouses should be lovers and friends because he said lovers are always face to face and they're consumed with one another. Friends are always side by side and they're consumed with the journey together. And that's what Proverbs says, consume with one another and consume with the journey ahead and committed to the journey ahead. And that's some healthy stuff, right? That's really some healthy stuff. Let me get to my last point and I'll sp spend some time our, what Terry and I have learned, I guess. This one you may not have heard before. You may have heard some of that I bet you didn't hear this one. Marriage is ministry. Gosh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. Terry has been a missionary for 35 years, right? Uh, caught between a rock and a hard place. Caught with a rock and a hard place. I don't know. But marriage is ministry, man. It really is. Because what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's the gospel? What's the gospel throughout the whole Bible? Here's the Bible in 10 seconds, right? We were created, every single one of you and myself, everybody in the hearing of my voice, online and elsewhere, all of us, whether we know it or not, whether we accept God or not, whether we believe in it or not, were created in the image of God. So all these killings that are going on, it's killing God. It's killing part of God. Do you remember when Jesus showed up? I didn't even have this in my notes. This is Holy Spirit talking. When Jesus showed up to Paul, who was killing Christians, right? Hated them, detested them. I would say, you want to prove the gospel? Paul killing Christians, hated them. Then he became one. Explain that. But Jesus showed up. Remember what he said? He didn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting and killing other Christians? He said, why are you persecuting and killing me? Because all of us are created in the image of God, friends. The Imagio Dei. And I love John Wesley who started Methodism. He said that image can be twisted, it can be wounded, it can be distorted, but it's never destroyed. It's the Imagio Dei, the image of God. When you feel at your worst, look in the mirror and say, God, I don't know why, but I'm created in your image. There's something in me that reflects you. Help me be a good steward of that with myself and with others. We're creating the image of God. God is great. How many believe that? Clap your hands. God is great. Yeah, God is good. Thank you. He is. Well, thank him. God is great, right? So listen, by definition, if we're created in the image of a very great God, it means that God has created us for greatness. But because of sin, we're not even a shadow of what we're supposed to be. And Jesus looked into the world and saw how distorted we were and came into the world, gave himself, humbled himself, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a sacrifice for twisted people like us. What did Leah sing earlier? Even when we were sinners, Christ died for us, right? And, and he tried to restore us to our greatness. Do you realize that's what a marriage is? A marriage is, is to be, ministry is to be gospel fulfillment. Gospel fulfillment and commitment to the journey, right? That's what it means to be a ministry. Gospel fulfillment. We're doing the same thing. In other words, when Terry, I'm just going to put in my favor, when Terry agreed to be married to me, she wasn't married to who I was. She was married to the potential of who I might be. Because all of us, the Bible says, is going on from glory to glory, future glory. So Terry made a commitment saying, Chip, you're going on to a future glory, and it's my job to walk side by side with you on the journey to help you get there. And willing to sacrifice of her own personal needs 
to pour into my potential future, and I have tried my best to do the same with her. Marriage is ministry, man. It's, it's, it's really pouring into each other. It's, it's saying that, that we want to we serve and minister together, right? To comfort, to exhort. And somebody said to me, well, you know, I, uh, well, if, what, if, what if my spouse is, God forbid, abusive? I've told my daughter, if that ever happens, fire the bum. Um, I'll help you pack. But marriage, what, somebody said to me, well, what if my spouse is selfish? I said, do you know the worst thing you can do for a selfish person? Is help them be selfish, like, it doesn't mean you accept things. We're comforting. We're doing all ministry. Confronting, exhorting, encouraging, comforting, forgiving, challenging, teaching. That's what ministry is. And that's what it says that we're, those are the one another's, if you read the Bible, we're supposed to do together and be committed to it, right? What did it say? Iron sharpens iron. That's how the journey's supposed to be. That'll apply in parenting. That'll apply in friendships. And it'll apply in relationship repair that I'm going to talk about in a few weeks. So I love Leward Smeads. He was a theologian. He's gone home to be with God. He wrote a lot of books about forgiveness. But I found a little, two things I want to share with you. One from Lewis Smeads, one from C.S. Lewis. But Lewis Smeads said this. He said, when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of a sense for what I was getting into. Right? He said, how could I know how much she would change over 40 years? How could I know how much I would change? He said, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were married, and each of the five has been me. The connecting link with my old self has always been the memory of the name that I took on our wedding day. On that day, I said, I am he who will be there with you for the journey. And when we forget that name, when we lose that identity, we can hardly find ourselves again, and the bond that connects us will be frayed to breaking. When we make and keep our promises, we are most of all like the God whose name is, I am the one who will be there with you for the journey. Among all the dimensions of the mature person in Christ, none comes closer to the character of our Lord than the daring to make a promise and the courage to keep the promises that we make. Marriage is full of a lot of things. It's full of feelings, but at the end of the day, a marriage is more than feelings. In fact, C.S. Lewis, we're going to put the quote up there. He said marriage is more than being in love. He said being in love is a good thing, but it's not the best thing. Love as distinct from being in love is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by, in Christian marriages, the grace of Jesus Christ. They can have this love for each other even at that, those moments when they do not like each other. I'm, I'm trying not to look at my wife right now. <laughs> You're trying not to look at your spouse or friend or whatever, right? They can retain this love even when they would easily, if they allowed themselves, be in love with someone else. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity, this quieter love, this sustaining love, this go-the-distance love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. Committing to the journey, right? Being in love, it's, it's ministry. And it's the ministry that Jesus Christ did for us, right? He, he was willing to marry us, and he got into the worst marriage in the history of the world, 
Because marrying us got him what? Nailed to a cross, rejected, torn apart. But he hung in there with us. And we need to hang in there with one another. There was a teacher that called a mom from school. She, um, his, she that third grade class. And the mom had a son in her class named Michael. And she said, something very interesting happened today. She said, I always do with the kids Aesop's fables. And she said, I was doing the one with the grasshopper and the ant. You remember that, the grasshopper and the ant? And the ant was saving food in the summer months, but the grasshopper was playing. You know the story. And then winter came, and the grasshopper had no food, and the ant had a storehouse of food. And the grasshopper goes to the ant and says, give me some food. And she stops right there, and she said, children, I want you to finish the story. I do that every year. And many of the kids say, you know, the grasshopper and the ant shared their food and lived at the ant's house, and both of them lived through the winter. That was the most common. She said, once in a while, I get some folk, cranky ones that say, the ant said, no, grasshopper, you can't have anything. You know, I only have enough for myself. Sounds like the United States of America. Um, the third one, though, she said, your son did something I never saw before. She said, he said, he finished the story, said the ant gave the grasshopper everything he had. The grasshopper lived, and the ant died. And she said at the end of the, her story, he put a cross in the story. She said, I, I'm not a Christian, but I think I just met one in your eight-year-old son. Can you talk to me about Jesus? That covenant that he made, that commitment that he made to give it all. That is a commitment we can make to hang in there with one another. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit. Have you ever thought about the other place we take vows is when we join a church? Future vows. The church is like a marriage. Being together, we got to hang in there with each other. We got to love each other, even when we don't like each other, right? And even when you don't like me, and I'm pretty unlikable, you, you know, hang in there, man. Encourage me, grow me up, challenge me. We need to do that with one another. And we commit to this, okay? And that's, that's this image of Christ marrying the church and us being married one to another. For what? The journey. The journey of what? Building Christ's kingdom. The world we're all longing for. So let me say this to you. If, if you've been listening to this and you're single or you're not married, you don't want to get married, whatever, let me say to you, you know, two things. First, Jesus Christ, the most important person that ever lived, lived his entire life single. So there's got to be something pretty amazing about that for, you know, for Jesus. And the church talks about sometimes horrible ways, but Jesus Christ endorses, loves, affirms people being single, okay? It's not like married is better. It's just different, that, you know, and that's why I make this commitment. The second thing is, if you're yearning for that kind of relationship or you're in a relationship and you're trying to hang in there, let me tell you, read Revelation 19, 1 through 10. If you read that, it says all of us have an ultimate wedding that's coming. And it's with the bridegroom. And we, you know, the best spouse, the perfect and best spouse awaits every single one of us. Read Revelation 19. But I love that verse. I'm going to close with this. I love that verse that says, you know, hatred, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You know, Peter later, Peter, who was a beneficiary of love, who promised to Jesus, I'm future-oriented. I'm making a covenant with you. I'll never deny you. And then like three hours later, Jesus who? Right? And it was the love. Peter, do you love me? That Jesus brought him back. And Peter later quoted Proverbs. I didn't know he was quoting Proverbs. And he said, when in doubt, friends, when everything fails, love one another. 
because love covers a multitude of sins. Nothing I've talked to you, whether we're single, we're married, being brothers and sisters in Christ, none of this is going to happen. It's going to, the only fuel for it, for it is love. Not just being in love, but sustaining love and committed love and love that goes the distance. The love that we have seen in Jesus Christ and the love that's been implanted in every single one of us. If we're created in the image of God and God is love, John says, that means we've been created and in our DNA is really that kind of agape love. And we need to let that love bear out on all of our relationships and on all of the world. Amen? All right, let me, let me tell you when I close. I love children. That's why I, I, I love your children. You guys know when I go out in the lobby, I hang out with our kids. Terry and I hung out in children's ministry last week. Um, you know, children say very, very pure things until we contaminate them, right? And they asked uh, recently, there was a, I saw this video, a compilation of kids where they asked them, what is love? You want to hear the answers as I close? Here's the answers from young kids. First one said, love is when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her. Oh, you guys are so softies. Here's another one. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. That's love, but for a child. Love is when someone hurts you and you get so mad, but you don't yell at them because you know it would hurt their feelings. This is how I fight my battles. Out of the word of a child, right? Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure it tastes okay. You think our kids aren't watching us, friends? When I had my daughter and my two boys, I read a poem that said, there's a child amongst you taking notes. Right? Taking notes. Um, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. That one got me. Love is like two older people that have been married a long time and they're still friends even after they know each other so well. I like this one. I, I quoted this to my wife this morning. She hasn't talked to me since. Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still thinks that he is handsome. <laughs> Two more. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. And my last one is my favorite. Love. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it an awful lot. Because people forget. Out of the mouth of children, don't forget whose you are. Not just who you are, but whose you are. And that the love of God is within you. And mean it. And say I love you a whole lot. Okay? We're going we're gonna to go to communion. I'm going to kick it to Pastor Terry here. And she's going to do something. She's going to read our vows. Vows that if you're a member of this church, you've already taken. Or if you're a member of thinking about joining a church. And she's going to invite us to renew those vows. Now, if you've never taken those vows, don't worry. Just listen in. If you're online, you're like, I am not joining a church. That's okay. But if you listen, these are the things we're supposed to commit ourselves to. And all of these are acts of love. And she's going to invite us as we come to that table, the table of the new covenant, to make a future-oriented renewal of vows to extend our love with the world. Pastor Terry, take it.